Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Leewood Campus of Christ Community. And uh, happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, there's a lot of power in that statement. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And I, I wonder how often we reflect on the power of that statement, especially if you ask the opposite question. What if Jesus isn't risen. He isn't risen indeed. What if today, this morning, we all roused ourselves from sleep, maybe a little earlier than we wanted to, and we got all gussied up, and you guys look great, by the way. Uh, for those of you who know me, I put on a suit today. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Take a picture. <laughs> You got all dressed up, you put a ham in the oven, you deviled the eggs, and you drove here, and you even texted in, which maybe you don't even want to do, and we sang some wonderful songs. And we did all of this to celebrate a, a Sunday 2,000 years ago where absolutely nothing happened at all. Does it really matter, the resurrection, either way? Can, can't we all just say that whatever happened to Jesus, Easter is, is a beautiful time where we celebrate friends and family, remember that God loves us, and that resurrection is a, is a matter of the heart. It's a beautiful picture. It's a metaphor of what becoming a better person can look like in each of our lives. We, we could agree on the moral teachings of Jesus and his aspirations for a better world, and we can leave the rest of this stuff behind. That's the question. Does Easter matter? Either way, that's the question I want us to look at together this morning. It's actually the question in his own way that the Apostle Paul answers for us as he addresses it in Corinth thousands of years ago. So we just read in our scripture reading from a letter called 1 Corinthians. It was written to a church in Corinth. They were a church not unlike us today, asking themselves, does the resurrection matter? And Paul answers them, as far as I can tell, in two different angles, two different ways. First, he says, does it matter if that tomb is still occupied? So let's start there. If Jesus' body is still to this day in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, somewhere underneath modern-day Jerusalem, what does that mean for us today, right now, in this room? Okay, so let's start there. Turn to 1 Corinthians if you have your Bible, feel free to use your table of contents to find it. We're going to be in chapter 15. We're going to bounce around just a little bit. 
in that chapter, but I'll try to keep you uh, where, we, where we're focusing, where we're spending our time. As I mentioned before, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul, who was a, a Jewish convert to Christianity. You can actually read his conversion story in the book of Acts, how he came uh, to know Jesus. He's a really, really important person in the history of the church worldwide. He started churches all over the Roman Empire early on in the Christian movement. Many, I think, rightly would credit him as the reason that Christianity spread from what was initially the, the Near East and the Middle East to the Greco-Roman world, the Mediterranean, and then to Europe at all. So for at least some of us in this room, our ancestors first heard about Jesus likely because of this man. I think that's fair to say. One of the churches that Paul started was in a town called Corinth. You can see it here on this map. This is where ancient Corinth was located. Uh, it's not terribly far from Athens, Greece. And just to the left there on this map would be the country of Italy, if that helps orient you at all. So it's right there in the Mediterranean, Corinth. Now, Paul wrote lots of letters to the churches that he started. Uh, in fact, much of our New Testament is simply uh, a record of those letters to churches. But he probably wrote the most letters to this church. We have two of them in our Bibles, but we're actually pretty sure there were at least two others because he makes reference to them in the New Testament. This church, by the way, was an absolute mess, total mess. Lots of issues, lots of disagreements, interpersonal problems, arguments about everything. The color of the carpet, where the piano should be on stage. Okay, the whole, if you can imagine a church conflict, it happened at Corinth. And Paul, in, throughout 1 Corinthians, tries to address them as they come up. One of those arguments, as I mentioned before, was about resurrection. Does the resurrection matter? And there were at least a few people in this church that did not think so. It doesn't matter. Here's, here's part of Paul's response to that. This is verse 16 now. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now the gist of what Paul says here is that if Jesus is still in that tomb, if he has not been raised, then we will not be either. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, Paul says, then all those fellow Christians at Corinth, he calls them those who have fallen asleep, those who've died, they aren't just asleep. They've perished. They're annihilated. Forever. Poof, gone. Here's how I would summarize this, what Paul's saying. He's saying, if that tomb is still occupied, then death wins. And it wins in every case. Period, full stop, forever. Now, here's the thing. When the Bible talks about death, if you were to read it straight through, you would notice that it's talking about an enemy. I think that's one, of, for me, that's one of the most compelling things about the Bible. It knows exactly what death really is. Death is not something to be accepted or welcomed in the final analysis. It is something alien to what God wants for us, and it is something that causes each of us each of us, incredible pain and grief and loss at one point or another along the journey of our lives that was never supposed to happen by God's design. 
Death is a wound and a blight on existence that cannot and should not be rationalized or sentimentalized. It's awful. Death is awful. My hunch is that most of, in this, most of us in this room can nod along to that. It's like, yeah, death is bad. It's painful. It's scary. It's awful. And if Jesus isn't raised, it's more than those things. It's also permanent. I, I cannot think, honestly, of a more terrifying reality or situation than that. If death wins in the end, then pretty much everything that makes life worth living breaks against the rocks of our mortality. It's all going to end, and when it does, it's over. This, this is what Paul's trying to tease out. He even says, if Jesus is still in that tomb, if even he could not defeat death, then we have absolutely no chance at all. And those whom we have buried along the way, loved ones, dear ones to us, we will not see them again. If death conquered Jesus, then it has conquered and will conquer each one of us. Those who have already been, those in this room now, and those yet to come. It's a done deal, inevitable. And on top of that, if all death is permanent, it makes life pretty meaningless. Now, Paul doesn't tease this out here, but it does not take much reflection to realize and understand that if all of us, regardless of who we are in this life, of who we love and who we hate, or what we do or don't do, or what we stand for, what we stand against, if we all end in different iterations of the same box in the ground, why does it matter at all? Why does it matter? And if it doesn't matter at all, then we're in real trouble, because then why, why are we getting out of bed in the morning? Happy Easter, by the way. I know, I know what you're thinking, but here's, the, here's what I'm doing, okay? If all that sounds hopeless to us, we're beginning to understand what Paul's answer is to this question. Does it matter if that tomb is still occupied? Well, yes. Yes, it does. Profoundly so. Because it means death wins. And if death wins, Paul says, then we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what he says in verse 19. And he doesn't mean that in some generic sense, okay? He means anyone who reads, for example, this letter, 1 Corinthians and gathers around it, like we're doing right now, and decides to celebrate Easter without a resurrection, without a risen Lord, but just wants some familiar songs and some candy hidden in the backyard and a food coma nap later on today, that those are the people of all most to be pitied. Because it's one thing as sad a thing as it is from my perspective, it's one thing to reject outright that Jesus rose from the dead and to live life as best you can in light of that. Spoiler alert, okay? I don't believe that. But I understand it. And I lived about half my life thinking that that was true. I understand that. It's one thing to say Jesus is still dead and to simply walk away from the whole thing. It's another to say Jesus isn't raised, but I want to celebrate him anyway. His death, his death and resurrection aren't that important to me and what I believe and how I live. That, that's who Paul is talking to. He says, that is the worst thing you can do with Easter Sunday. And I can tell you, 
as a student of the Bible, that many of those who study the scholars of the New Testament, especially from Europe and America over the last hundred years or so, have been trying to argue just this, that you can strip away the supernatural parts of the Bible. You can strip away the resurrection of Jesus and you can spiritualize it and you can make it really super easy to accept for our modern Western sensibilities that are uncomfortable with things like resurrections, to argue that the early Christians didn't believe in a literal physical resurrection of Jesus, that this whole thing is an analogy for the the transforming power of Jesus' teaching and his example, and that this teaching of Jesus and his example in this whole New Testament thing is basically a hallmark card meant to inspire you to be a better person, and that's enough. Those scholars, those who would tell us that the resurrection, eh, it doesn't really matter, are exactly who Paul is concerned with. And it is this passage, and I've, I've read them, that flummoxes those scholars the most over and over again, because Paul says if we are wrong, if Jesus is not literally physically raised, this entire thing falls apart. And we are the most pathetic of all peoples because we have put our hope in a lie. And every funeral that we've done and every prayer that we've uttered in a hospital room and every, or a hospice facility or the ICU or a graveside burial has been in vain. It has been make-believe, a going through the motions pitiable. That's Paul's word. Pitiable. The world, Paul's saying, the world should look at us. If none of this is true, not with anger or frustration, but with pity, with shrugs and sighs, like the world should peek in these doors right now and look at us and say, look at them. How sad. Does it matter if the tomb is occupied? Well, Paul says, yes, it it does. But what about the other side of the question? Does it matter if that tomb is empty? Does it matter if Easter is based on a fact of history and not simply the sentiment of a bunch of early followers of Jesus who were so desperate to keep his memory alive, they concocted a story to get another Roman holiday on the calendar? Again, Paul answers that too. In fact, he's so convinced that the tomb is empty, he puts it this way to the Corinthians. This is verse 1 now. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Now there's a lot there, okay? Let me give you the Reader's Digest version. Paul is saying, he's hinting that there is a lot of evidence that that tomb is empty and that Jesus rose from the dead and that that empty tomb cannot be ignored. 
If that tomb is empty, it cannot be ignored. This passage, by the way, here in 1 Corinthians 15, is one of the most important in the New Testament for understanding the resurrection and the facts of history that back it up. So let me just give you two quick examples here, okay? First, this section that I just read, starting in verse 1, uh, is widely recognized by biblical scholars, whatever their, their uh, convictions are, believer, skeptic, whatever, is widely recognized as an early Christian creed. And if you have grown up in a more liturgical church or that's more your, your background, you know what the creeds are. Um, we say uh, around here often the Apostles' Creed. If you're familiar, that one says, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and it goes on. We often say this creed because it connects us to what we've believed for generations past. This is what creeds are. When we say this, we are saying something that has been handed down and memorized and said in the exact same way all over the world for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. That's what a creed is. It's a summary statement of what you believe and why. That's what Paul is doing here. He is slipping into a well-known formula for how early Christians talked about what they believe about Jesus' resurrection. He says here that he received this. That's the word. He received it. He did not invent this. And then he passed it along to the Corinthians that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You can even hear it, right? The repetition. The doctrine of the burial and the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus is older than Paul. Old enough, in fact, that it became like a chant or a song within the early Christian movement, which means that the physical resurrection of Jesus was not something invented later. I don't care how many Da Vinci Code books you read. That's not what happened. It was central to Christian belief and teaching within several years of the crucifixion. Most scholars think that 1 Corinthians is written 20, 25 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the events in question. For Paul to reference it here, it had to have been well known. So, you know, lop a decade or two off of that. That's how old this creed is. That cannot be ignored. It means that if you want to explain away the resurrection... You have to explain away why the people closest to the events in question believed and taught and died for the fact that that tomb was empty. And they did. But that cannot be ignored. Another fact that can't be ignored. Paul mentions in verse 5 that the tomb wasn't just empty, but that Jesus actually physically appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, to the 12 apostles, and then to 500 people at once, and then last of all, to him. Paul goes out of his way, you'll notice, when he describes those 500 witnesses, in verse 6, he says, and many of them are still alive. Now, why would he point that out? What, what relevance does that have? Well, he's putting it to the skeptical Corinthians. He's saying, listen, if you can't take my word for it, and the word of the apostles isn't enough for you, Ask any of those 500 who are still available to you. If they saw the risen Jesus, go ask them. They're around. 
Now, that is not something that you encourage someone else to do when you're lying to them. Or even if you're not sure what that eyewitness is going to say. If Paul has any doubt about the physical resurrection of Jesus, about the fact that that tomb was empty and is empty and always will be empty, he is doing an exceptional job at hiding it. This is evidence that cannot be ignored. If that tomb was empty, we need to explain it. If these people claim to have met the risen Jesus, we have to explain it. What we cannot do, as Paul so adamantly writes here, is ignore it or pretend that it doesn't matter either way. And not only should these facts give us pause, more importantly, what Paul wants is for these facts to give us hope. Because if that tomb is empty, if the resurrection is real, then it is the only hope for us. That is our hope. And here is, I think, Paul's overall point as he, as he writes these words. There is no meaningful way to follow Jesus, no matter how compelling his example or his teaching. If you think he is dead and buried like every other human person from the beginning of time, if he is not raised, then we have no hope And there are a million things we should be doing right now instead of exactly what we're doing. But, in fact, Paul says, and he he bet his entire life on this, Jesus has been raised. And if he has been raised, then we have eternal hope in him. And if we have hope in him, then there is nothing more important or more permanent or more real than what we're doing right here and right now. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The only thing, in fact, more wonderful than worshiping the risen Jesus today We'll be seeing him when he comes again to make all things right. And when he utterly destroys our last enemy from of old. Paul puts it this way in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. And if you can begin to wrap your mind and heart around that. Not only as something that you hope is real or that you think might be real, but as something you know is real. Through and through, you'll begin to understand the power of the phrase we started this conversation with, He is risen. risen You see, what we just did is at the heart of Easter, which is the beating heart of Christianity. And this bedrock foundation of our hope in this life and the next, this statement, that simple statement, has toppled empires. It has altered history. It has taken again and again the worst loss and grief and pain and injustice a person can take and turned it into redemption, forgiveness, and hope. Incredible power. What governments all over the world, both then and now, and individuals from every tribe, tongue, 
and nation have discovered for over 2,000 years is that the only thing more unstoppable, more unavoidable, and more powerful than death itself is the hope born from He is risen. He is risen indeed. And if you're here and you are looking for something more than a brief and fading existence, if you're here and you're looking for hope in dark and uncertain times, if you find the shifting sands of consumerism and materialism to be overrated and underwhelming, if you want more than the absurdity of eat and drink for tomorrow we die, I ask you, I implore you to try your footing on the only solid rock that I personally have ever found. The empty tomb, the stone rolled away, the risen Jesus who was and is, and is to come. And if you don't believe me, ask Vanessa. Vanessa's a part of our family here at Christ Community, and Jesus found her too. And she discovered that Jesus' resurrection life is not just something that he promises in the future. It is something that invades your life now for anyone who would believe and follow after him. Vanessa, personally felt his resurrection power in her own darkest moments. Just watch. Addiction is a very powerful thing. I mean, it's, it's a chain. It's heavy chains. One night I had came home and my parents had asked me if I was doing drugs and I was at the time I had just started dabbling and so my parents confronted me about it and I was like no no I would never do that I found another place to live with another guy so I would rather move out than to admit my wrongs I went from you know just taking pills to get through my shift at work not holding down a job my addictions getting worse I don't have money to be able to afford my drugs. How am I gonna keep going? It was a really sad time for all of us because, you know, my mom felt like she had failed. My dad felt the same way. I was more angry than anything and ashamed. It's that shame that makes you kind of distance yourself from the people you love. I hid from my parents. It got to the point where they would even come try to look for me at the house where I was staying. I would hide in my room. I could hear them knocking on the door and I would just, I refused to open the door because I knew that if they saw me, they, they would know immediately something's wrong. Her and my dad were so sad one day that they were like, you know, there is a church right here down the block. Why don't we go check it out and see what that's all about? She still had all this stress about wanting to take care of her daughter and, and save her from whatever she was going through. But at the same time, she was also learning to let go and let God. One day I went to go visit my parents and we were sitting at the dinner table and my mom told me about this dream she'd had. And in this dream, I was a little three, four year old girl, but I was, I was looking down really sad. She's like, all I could see were your eyelashes and then tears running down your face. And I was trying to reach out to you to grab you and be like, don't cry, I'm here with you, don't cry. And every time I try to grab you, you would slip in between my fingers. 
And in that moment, I just lost it. I started crying, and that's when I admitted to my mom, I do need help. It's not just a dream, mom. I need help. I'm not okay. If she wouldn't have made the first step to come to church and seek God, I would have never gotten to know God. And my, my story would be very different. It could be my mom sitting here talking about, you know, her testimony about the loss of a daughter to addiction rather than her daughter sitting here saying it's possible to get clean. Prior to getting baptized, I was still struggling with my addiction. It was very fresh still. Once I made the decision that I'm gonna take my, my relationship with God serious, this is life or death for me. Once I made that decision, it's like I went underwater and God brought me back like a completely different person with a new perspective, with, with new needs and wants and, and desires. Even the own power of addiction can be broken by God's power, by God's will. Well, Vanessa, have you come to trust and treasure Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life? Yes, all right.